Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Wrath Bearing Trees podcast. We publish fiction, essays, poetry, and cultural criticism by veterans and people who are interested in writing about or exploring themes connected to trauma. I'm Adrian Bonnenberger. I co-edit Wrath Bearing Tree, and today I'm joined by JT, or Jen Blatty, a photojournalist, documentarian, West Point graduate, and Iraq veteran. Um, Jen, JT. In Afghanistan. In Afghanistan? You were in Afghanistan too? Yes. Where? Kandahar and Bagram. Wow. Uh, and you were there as, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a combat engineer? Yes. What was that like? Because um, I understand you were there f- fairly early in the conflict. Yes. <laughs> could say that um it was uh, a learning experience how about that yeah i bet um uh, what what years were you there i was there from january to august 2002 so the very beginning of the conflict yes yes so you were uh later on you in 2006 i think um you were in iraq no 2003 2003 i'm sorry um so for the invasion well, yeah. A, what was it like between those two experiences? That's a big question. <laughs> I mean, it was raw, I guess is the, the right word to say, just because it was so early on. Um, you know, we were there to make living areas for future troops to come or to build up the bases to clear the mines. Um, it was hot. It was cold. <laughs> it was dirty, you know? It, yeah. It was scary at times, but it, there was kind of like a, I have no idea what it it became later. I know it's completely different now, but it was, um, I don't really know how to put it. It was just, uh, there was nothing there, you know, it was just us and there weren't that many rules yet. You could just leave the camps, you know, and drive down into downtown Nazaria and go get supplies. Wow. Um, without going through like a ton of paperwork and security measures, you know, of course, you know, in time, those kinds of things change, but yeah, it's kind of like the wild west, I guess. That's really, I think that's the, that's the type of situation that people often uh, dream or fantasize about when, uh, when they're in a military context is, is an escape from the, uh, the bureaucracy and the rules of, of normal life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the biggest things for me is that I usually think about is like, especially when we went into Afghanistan is it was, no one had been there yet. You know, there was nobody really like you could talk to be like, Hey, what is it like there? You know, we're going on a rotation, just us being the first in and nobody having come home yet. It was, uh, I mean, it was kind of scary going into Afghanistan. I think that was the most, um, memorable things for me was going into Kandahar that first that first time yeah the, land, the, the tactical landing we were doing uh tactical landings um, oh wow you know, when we got there we were actually there to um build the runways to be able to withstand 
larger aircrafts than C-17s so that they could land more equipment and more personnel at a time. Because right back then it was only C-17s that could land on the, the airfields because of the concrete. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, it was called rapid runway repair. Um, so we were working on the runways. And when we first landed, we, we came in on C-17s. And so the first time we're, <laughs> when my chalk landed in Kandahar, they told us that we were going to have a tactical landing before um, or when we got into Kandahar. And it was, it was like a roll. I mean, it was scary. <laughs> Put it that way. Yeah. Like yeah. Their, their movements to make sure that you're not attacked, I guess, on landing. I'm not saying this very well. No, no, but it was, I just remember that being one of the most, uh, one of the things I remember the most was that tactical landing. (laughs) Yeah. I, I remember my first, uh, the first time I was going into theater and I, my first deployment to Afghanistan was in 2007. So it had been, uh, I was going to a part of it that wasn't very well, uh, or comprehensively built up, but the, the, the main places, Bagram and the Salerno, were places that had, you know, a pretty robust infrastructure. And it wasn't until we we came out, we went out to our, our FOB, you know, sort of out by the border of Pakistan, that things were tactical, they were doing things tactically. And it, it felt there's a kind of urgency that you feel um, when you're doing it like that, that's especially if yeah. you've never done it before, that's really that really stays with you. Yes, yes. Because uh, your, your mind just goes into the unknown. What it's what what is going to be on the other end? You know. Yeah, yeah. So that when we finally did land, I remember the back door of that C seventeen that just dropping open, and it was just pitch black. I've never seen darkness like this in my life. Because you weren't allowed to have any lights, first of all. Um, but so we did the tactical landing at night. But I just, I've never seen stars like that in my life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> walking out there yeah there's a part in uh, i think it's it's either the uh the speckled band or the hound of the baskervilles from uh in in sherlock holmes one of one of those two stories um where they have to hide in a closet sherlock and um and uh watson are hiding in some closet for whatever reason to catch the person who's doing the thing and they mentioned they uh sir arthur conan doyle describes this particular blackness as just like the the most profound blackness either of them had ever experienced. And it was a rare slip up for him because um, what the character of Watson, Dr. Watson is himself a veteran of Afghanistan. And so I, that was one of the times where I was reading that and I'm thinking to myself like, Oh, so Doyle is using, he's an Afghan Watson is an Afghan vet because it's convenient for him to be an Afghan vet. That's sort of, that's like cool and exotic, but not because Doyle himself has been to Afghanistan, if he had been, or if he'd had that type of experience, he would have understood that the, maybe the most black moment that let, you know, the, the darkest moment that, uh, just in, in physical darkness that, that, um, that could have been experienced had already been experienced before by Watson in Afghanistan. So Watson's experience in that moment would have been to say, uh, you know, like, oh, it is as dark, it is as dark in this closet as it was in Afghanistan, which is to say very dark. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's I that that struck me too. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought up the um, you know, uh, the visual or the visual sensation of of being in Afghanistan because since that time you have 
gone into a field that is in, incredibly visual. And uh, I'm wondering how you made that transition. What and um, if that transition, if if you knew already that this is something that you were interested in doing, even when you were in Afghanistan as an engineer. Um, I think that before I even went to West Point, that the other path I kind of wanted to take was art school. So mm. I've always been, I think, had a creative mind, but I don't think I knew that I wanted to be a photographer. Then I knew I wanted to write. Um, I was always writing in a journal and I was actually always taking pictures. I had disposable cameras cause this was before digital camera when I was in Afghanistan and I would just get these disposable cameras and send uh, them home to be developed. So I didn't actually see the pictures till I got home. Wow. And in Iraq, in Iraq I was always taking pictures too, but uh, it wasn't until later that I decided, Oh, I'm going to try to get into this field until I got out of the army. What led you to that? What was the, uh, I think that it was a lot of people just always, I was always taking pictures and people just looking at my pictures saying, you should do something with this. My dad, um, when my dad told me that once, cause my dad is, I always respected what my dad said was in anything creative and he was a writer. Mm. So when he was seeing my photographs one day, he's like, you should really get into this. So I was like, maybe I should. So I started, <laughs> So I started trying to get gigs for people doing portraits for kids. And I started working for the local paper in Savannah, which is where I lived at the time because I was stationed at Fort Stewart. Mm. And then I stayed in Savannah after I got out. Beautiful city. Coaching. Yeah, it is beautiful. But I was coaching tennis, doing all kinds of things. And and then I just got an internship with National Geographic Traveler, um, photo internship. And it just... I just didn't give up. Yeah. <laughs> Still have to remind myself not to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. That's, that is the real challenge with the, uh, art and writing and, uh, yeah. world. It's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. So the project that you're working on now, um, now being, uh, spring, winter, spring, 2019 is, Photo photographing and uh, interviewing, both for written and for, um, uh, I guess, auditory media, you could say, um, veterans of the conflict in Ukraine. Um, when what got you interested in that particular conflict, and how long have you been there? Well, it started in exactly a year ago, actually. Um, or a little over a year ago, I ran into a West Point classmate at an Army Navy football game in New Orleans. And he was working on trying to go back to Iraq for a different project. And we just, we kind of just connected um, both creative and he just really liked what I was doing. I had just uh, finished the project that I had worked on for like 10 years called Fishtown, which is kind of the same um, format of work but on the fishing communities of Louisiana, like a preservation, historic preservation project. And I've always, or at least the past five years of my life, I've just kind of felt like something is missing as far as um, 
in the work I'm doing, wanting to do, I mean, it all goes to the sense of purpose, I guess, when you are a combat veteran or when you are so responsible for something in your life before for people, for the mission, and then you go back into the civilian world and you're just taking pictures or you, you want to use it to do something important. And I've, through meeting Dylan again, it became apparent to me that how much I've missed the military community mm. and have been drawn to want to go into some kind of conflict, go back to those places where I always wanted to get away from before. Huh. Um, you know, yeah. it's a weird thing to like want to leave a place and stay in a place at the same time. Um, but he was working with John Bursler of Combined Arms, and John Bursler was working on developing a summit in Kyiv, an international summit uh, to assist Ukraine in developing a Ministry of Veterans Affairs. So I knew nothing about Ukraine at the time, hardly, or the conflict. I knew a little bit about Crimea. and. Mm -hmm. That is what opened the door, and they invited me to go with. I found a way to get credentials to go into the, the conflict zone. And when I was researching before going and just finding out more and more about this war, I started learning about these volunteers. Like, I'm, you know, when I'm like, who are the veterans of this war? And I met a few of them before going on Skype through John, because John knew them. And it, I was blown away. I was blown away by who these 2014-15, how, how many of them were just regular people, kind of like revolutionary war style for us Americans, patriots, that just took it upon themselves to go into a war zone and save their country when the insurgents came in. Um, anyway, that's how I ended up there, and I got hooked. <laughs> Yeah. Very quickly, very quickly becoming friends with them, um, feeling community with them and finding a kind of a missing piece in my own life, I guess. Visually, so, what would you say are some of the differences? Uh, because it's it, I mean, we, we have our aesthetic as the U.S. military, but there's a, a very different aesthetic between both the volunteers and the Ukrainian military. Um, what, how did that strike you? Between the Ukrainian armed forces and the volunteers? Well, between, I, I, I would say between, um, I mean... You, or our army. Between them and us, yeah. Well, between the volunteers and us, the difference is they, they went without pay. They went without contract. They went without any reason except to save their country, literally. Um, not having training, not having any any payback for what they were doing. You know, it was just strictly out of passion. I mean, no uniforms. It was like all funded by Twitter campaigns and, mm. you know, Facebook campaigns. Um, even those, because I call the volunteers also, there were some that went right to the recruitment stations right then and there to try to go with the military mm. at the time. And, I mean, I consider them kind of like the the our veterans that signed up right after 9-11. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if I answered your question, but the aesthetic is, I mean, I was, I mean, it's, it's crazy. First of all, I mean, even like organizationally, you know, 
being yeah. un- I mean, very chaotic as well. It's not like it was all just heroic and perfect, but still, it's fascinating to me. I guess what I'm getting at is there's a you know we 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 saw and I I, I don't I'm. When I was in Afghanistan, there were, you know, hinds and hips and MIGs and destroyed armored personnel carriers like BRDMs and BMPs, these sort of like light tanks. And there's a kind of like USSR vibe to the, uh, you know, to the military over there, I guess, because they used to be in the USSR. And it's like you, you can tell the difference between like a, a T-72 and, or a T ninety and like an Abrams, like there's a there's a military or like an Apache helicopter versus like the the Hind, for example. Like there's a vibe to you know the way the U.S. military, the Marines, the Army, um, like presents. Like there's a look there, and then there's like I don't know. It's I I I'm, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about what you saw with the soldiers and the volunteers on the at, on the front. You mean the ones that are on the front? Okay, so for one, the the bizarreness of even regular armed forces soldiers, even though they're not supposed to, just wear, I mean, they kind of wear whatever they want. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Their weaponry, um, I mean, I was just remember seeing all these old Soviet era AK 47s and pistols that are still being used. Wow, yeah. Which, I mean, it was just, yeah. The vehicles, everything—it's—it's it's all completely different. I mean, it's and like I said, like even now, the regular armed forces receives donations from volunteer organizations. Um, yeah, that's crazy. That, that the regular army can't provide, or you have people who are drone operators for in their official army position, and it might not be on their like their registered position. So they're flying drones for the army, but the drones are coming from other funded organizations, like not coming from the army. Right. So, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> and then you have volunteer soldiers who are still out there. And I don't, I'm not sure if it's actually, they're technically legal still, the ones that are out there. Um, but fighting alongside regular armed forces, Soldiers, but you know, a lot of these soldiers that I work with on the front are former volunteers that are in the regular army now. Right, right. I mean, those are the ones that I try to work with the most. Yeah, the um, it it it's interesting to hear you say that because that was something that struck me as well. Um, but I, uh, unlike yourself, I don't, I don't have a very visual eye. Um, I'm, um, or or that's not the mode of expression. Uh, I think I'm tend to be more of an you know as as a writer a bit more abstract and um it was a kind of uh, a shock to see how disorganized everything felt but then like you were saying earlier about you know like the american revolution like the disorganization um also comes across as like really sincere as like you know these are people who are out there you know on the front for the most part, because they want to be there because it's really important to them versus, right. you know, us with like, you know, a platoon of 40 people who all wear basically the same uniform and the knee pads have to be on and, you know, right. everybody qualifies for the GI Bill and then they go on after their life is done to do this other thing. And it's kind of a part of the whole, 
but this is, I don't know, on the front with the Ukrainians, I, 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 it, it's a very special place and a special feel there. Um, and I wish, I wish I could have seen the aesthetic in 2014-15. I mean, because that's, that's where this all, I mean, that's why I'm doing these recordings and getting these stories, because that's not exactly what it is like now at all. Right, I mean, it, right. There's still like essence of it, like there's still lingering parts of it that are still present there, but it's it's a completely different war now. Um, and it's, and one thing I have noticed just is, it's probably what I think about personally is in speaking with them, just seeing how it is now. Um, you know, they went to fight the corruption. They went to, on their own without being under a politician's control. Or, and now it's, they're kind of finding themselves back in that same position, you know, or sorry, in that same position that they were in back then, what they were fighting against, and now it's back in the control of the politicians, and um, and it's I'm I'm sure very frustrating with them. I, I don't know for them. Yeah. And and also what I see is the frustration with some of them in the difference between the soldiers who are just signing up to join the armed forces now as opposed to the ones who were there since the beginning, 2014, the one that the ones that went as volunteers and maybe now are in the armed forces fighting side by side with these new people who are just there for a complete different reason. You know, they're not this they're the people that signed up right after 9/11 and then there's the people that signed up years later when there was no urgency for a war when people maybe want some benefits from government or just need a job. You know, it's just it's not the same it's, they're not the same people anymore. Yeah. And I think there's some frustration in that. Like, who? what is this army now? What has it become, you know? Well, there's uh, another interesting corollary between, or not corollary, but just a point of comparison between this and the American Revolution uh, is that the generals leading the American Revolution um, – the general leading the American revolution ended up becoming the president and there was, and it was successfully prosecuted and there was an end to it. And, uh, that end was military, but it was also diplomatic as well. And there were political elements to it. And the people who won the war for the country were the ones who later on, you know, for the next 10 or 20 years really led it. Um, Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, obviously all of the generals that were involved. Um, And with Jefferson and Franklin, I'm thinking of like the diplomacy. And so now you've got, you know, you have the situation where the war isn't over. There doesn't seem to be any long term solution to it. I mean, I don't know how with Russia, um, you know, that that could end. And so, as you said, yeah, the, 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 the people who were in charge before have continued to be in charge and are just sort of taking some of that power back slowly but surely. Right. Yeah, well, I, I mean, like yourself, you know, I, I, not, I spent some time out at the front there, and it really was uh, uh, an inspiring. Um, it, it, it shows you what people are capable of doing, and uh, yeah, I'd never, I never, I don't know about you. I think we're we're probably from, you know, probably have a similar background in terms of growing up in like the eighties and nineties, and we were both probably teenagers when the wall came down, and. Um, uh, the 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 Berlin Wall, and 
and so nationalism and patriotism always sounded like really, um, I don't know, dangerous things or bad things to me. And then you talk to, you know, these Ukrainian volunteers or people out of the front and you're like, I don't know, I, it was really, really inspiring. I, Very inspiring. Yeah. Who, who were, who were a couple of the, uh, of the, the people that you like the best? Um, or the stories that were most interesting. I, I don't mean to put like an objective, like a subjective. Not a, I don't think there's a ones I like best, but off the top of my head, I think that the most fascinating story is of, uh, we'll just go by the call sign Valkyrie or Valkyria. She came from Russia. Oh, wow. Right. So she came over when she was 18, um, kind of just not understanding why the Russian media was talking about Maidan in the way, in the ways that they were saying that they were killing Russians and she didn't believe any of it to be true. So she wanted to find out for herself, she packed a backpack, went over there and she never came home. You know, wow. she ended up fighting with the IDAR volunteer battalion and now she's in the regular armed forces. That's inspiring to me. You know, it's, you know, she was very captivated with the, the strength and the the passion of Ukrainians to fight against corruptions and stand for what they believed in, and she joined them. So that's one of my favorite. I mean, she's got a very intense story as well. I mean, about her time in IDAR, but um, a lot of the IDAR veterans are they're some of my favorites. I think because um, they were just truly we have to go do something. I mean, all of them were like this, honestly. I really, I can't say I have favorites, but I've become closer to, I think, the IDARs more than anyone. <laughs> wow. And where, so describe, uh, you know, where you're meeting these people. You're meeting some of them in Kiev, I'm sure. Some of them are in other towns or near the front. Like, what, is, what does that look like? Um, it's either in Kiev or the ones who are out of the army. And it, through them, I mean, it's it's been kind of cool. Just being a veteran myself has just been a way in to be with them and have this different relationship of not being just a journalist. Do you know what I mean? And um, even some of the veterans, like uh, Dima, call sign bye-bye. Like he, <laughs> he's a veteran of IDAR, but he comes, he's come with me a few times to the front. And it's kind of like they're visiting old friends out there sometimes. Um, so anyways, I'm either in a flat in Kiev and I meet someone through the original soldiers that I, I met in the very beginning who I've become very close to. And they're kind of like my interpreters for interviews sometimes, Dima and Alina. Um, and the ones when I go to the front, I usually, sometimes it just happens that I meet them. They'll be like, oh, hey, we're, we were there in 14 and and their story really interests me. So I come back at a later date and I go down there to wherever it might be outside of like Toretsk or Abdivka mm. and I'll set up my little, I call it my tactical studio and <laughs> do the, do my portraits right out there. Just this little light box, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The flashlight box. Yeah. What? Oh, um, sorry, it's not a light box, a soft box, <laughs> a soft box. Yes. I have one flash that goes in a soft box and that's all I bring. Oh wow! And a black and a black blanket. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, what do you, what do you make of those uh, the interviews that you're doing in Kiev, um, and just in, in general, like seeing the situation of veterans um, 
post post military, the people who have left the war and have come back into society? The biggest thing that I've noticed is, I mean, is how crazy it would be to live in a place where a war is on your land and it's still ongoing and to actually be able to become a veteran and not be thinking about it every day. Yeah. Um, and that is what I've, I've noticed is like, how do these people transition? You know, like when the war is still going on a train right away. And yeah. for a lot of them, they, you know, they get out the ones that were there in 14, at least they, they finish their volunteer service, whatever you want to call it, or they're done. But then I've seen a lot of them just since I've met them join up again, join the armed forces. Cause it's like, they can't stay away from there. It's like how, you know, I mean, I understand it. I would never be able to, I don't think, easily just become a civilian when there was still the war going on or there's still a chance that Russia could attack at any time or my comrades are still out there, you know? Yeah. And it's a train ride. It's a train ride away, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like how do you even begin that process of even transitioning when the war is still there on your own land. I mean, for us, we could just take a, we take a flight and we're out of there. We're gone. You know, at least we're physically removed from the place. Yeah. But, but they're not. And that's, it's a really crazy reality to me and a very challenging reality for them. Yeah. That's a great point. I, another thing I would think of, uh, maybe being different or something that I noticed over there is that my experiences in war, you know, were very much, the experience of being in combat with, you know, people in my unit and the army infantry is fairly homogenous. When I was there, it was, at least when it came to, you know, the, 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 the sex of the troops, it was very homogenous. We were all male. Um, but you know, people looked pretty similar too, um, uh, on an, you know, ethnically, I guess you could say, uh, or racially. And, um, and so the Afghans all looked pretty similar, as well. Um, you know, there were right. older Afghans and younger Afghans, but I interacted with tribes and tribes. I mean, I don't know how long a, a particular had, tribe, you know, was in a particular area, but, you know, people looked pretty similar within a tribe. Um, and so going to Ukraine, you know, Ukrainians look sort of like Poles or Germans or Russians or, um, and I mean, there, there, there's definitely, you know, ethnic, um, variation there. I mean, the, the, the Turks, I think, had Crimea for a long time. And then, you know, that's, Ukraine has been crisscrossed by many different groups of people. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, another odd thing about it is that, you know, this, it's like, Ukraine was nothing like Afghanistan. It's not the mountains. It's not desert. It's a place with factories and like, you know, housing and yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, you know, I mean, and a lot of them look very similar. Like if you take a, I mean, a Russian and a Ukrainian, I mean, they, I mean, I, I mean, first of all, all Ukrainians that I know speak Russian first, you know? Right. I mean, they all speak the same language too. So yeah, it's not like there's that big difference in between identifying who's the bad guy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it I mean, was, at least I can't, not me. Yeah, and it was re so it's really weird. It, it was odd for me that like, and I, maybe for you as well, sort of, you know, having been in Afghanistan, having been in Iraq, it's like in Afghanistan and Iraq, you kind of can tell pretty quickly, like 
who could be an enemy. But then in Ukraine, you're just sort of like, I don't know if this person pulled a pistol on me and was like, I'm a Russian, I'm going to execute you now because you're telling stories about Ukraine. I'd be like, you got me, you know? Yeah, I didn't know. I thought you were Ukrainian. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it could be kind of similar to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Or World War II. I mean, it's, they, they, I mean, they also look like us. There are plenty of Russian and Ukrainian and German and Polish immigrants in America. So, I mean, like you're going to Chicago uh, for an exhibition. Like Chicago, I think, has one of the largest Ukrainian diasporas. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of my best friends growing up, his grandfather was Ukrainian, which I didn't know until, you know, I, I, I went over there because once you go to Ukraine, you start seeing Ukraine in, in many places. But, um, it does feel like a war that, and like you were saying, that war is close to them. It's home for them, but it's also pretty close to us in ways we probably, a lot of Americans probably aren't thinking about. It's close to, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, it is. I mean, I think it's one of my uh, John Bursler that says he's like, "This is the front line of democratic institutions." I mean, yeah. it k- kind of is if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. Well, um, do you have any uh, any cool anecdotes you want to share with us before we uh, before we drop off the drop off the call? Um, any weird things that you did or saw or things that you're proud of? Things that I did or saw specifically in specifically in Ukraine. Mm. No. (laughs) Well, like, what's what's okay? What's the what's the party story that you tell people that you're like, this is so? Here's the thing about Ukraine. Like, this is this thing that happened that like you need to know about to understand Ukraine. Uh, I tell them watch the movie Winter on Fire. (laughs) Mm. I mean just Maidan in itself is unbelievable to understand and comprehend Mm. but that's nothing I did personally that's just I don't know well then maybe I guess I guess maybe the, the point there is that people Although you weren't there for that, and I wasn't there for that either. I, I first arrived uh, a couple months after Debaltseva, so I didn't see any of the big fights. I saw fighting. I saw fighting that was, to me, pretty big, but it wasn't one of the, the big set-piece battles. Um, but that was that's still, even in 2019, that's really, really important to them. Um, it's I guess it feels like being part of the birth of a nation, you know? Like you see a nation getting born, um, in, in the revolution and in the battles. And that's kind of, that's cool. It's cool that that type of thing is still possible. I mean, it doesn't feel possible in our country anymore, like a, a country actualizing itself. Right. I agree. Well, on that note. I don't know if I have any anecdotes, so. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. On that I mean, note. The things that I love to remember are the gatherings that I have with the veterans at the flats. Nights of listening to the guys playing guitar, them singing. I mean, it's just amazing to feel part of the community with them, even though I don't speak the language. I can just sit there and not understand anything and feel completely in my place. Say more about that. Is that that's um, so they're 
like singing, playing the guitar and singing kind of like 1960s America? Is that like... No, they're playing a lot of times Ukrainian music or Russian music. Um, but they know it. They're singing it. Folk songs. Yeah, they're, they know it. They're singing it. And then Babai will do Metallica. They all love Metallica. Ah. All Ukrainians love Metallica, it seems. Um, then, you know, do some American music for me. <laughs> wow. And they know it. Yeah. Everybody knows, like, Metallica. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. But it's funny because as the nights go on, the ones that speak English will, you know, they start speaking English. And then by the end of the night, nobody's speaking English. And I'm just sitting there listening. To mm. But it's okay. Like, that's the great part of it is that I feel completely okay. Yeah. I don't feel awkward. I feel completely in place with them. Like, it's just like they're my family. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, um, to one thing actually that I would want to say is when I think about it, one thing that I've noticed about being there and that struck me from the very beginning is how much they love the American flag. Hmm. And I mean, I remember going to this sniper squad on, I don't know if it was like a second or third trip out there and they wanted me cause I'm an American veteran to sign this, American flag that they had. And I almost, it was very humbling to me because I look to them for like, I feel like they're the heroes. And, and sometimes I don't think that our country is doing enough, you know, and it's, it's almost like they love our flag more than a lot of most Americans do. Um, and I think that it's something that people need to know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that struck me as well. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Well, they get it. You know, that's like you brought up the American Revolution. You know, there's you look at our country and, you know, you and I are both people who have served it and served honorably and enthusiastically and have a stake in it. You know, everybody has a stake in it. Every citizen has a stake in it. But a lot of folks don't live or, you know, or act sometimes like that stake is important. You know, and that's not getting into the politics of it. It's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. It's not a socialism or a capitalism thing. It's that like no. a lot of folks just don't, you know, they, they, they piss it away and laugh about it. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, people don't know what the heck the 4th of July really means. It's just a, a holiday to go out drinking. You know, it's, you know, we forget, we tend to forget. So I'm trying to make sure that what these guys did is not forgotten. That's great. Because a lot of them are undocumented. So somebody's got to get their stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great place to stop. Um, thank you for talking uh, about your experiences in Ukraine. The dates for the exhibitions uh, that you'll be holding of your, uh, of your photographs and artwork uh, related to Ukraine and the storytelling uh, we will put in the links to uh, the show for the podcast. And um, yeah, is there anything, should, uh, do you have a Twitter handle, Instagram, anything like that where people can follow you or reach out to you? Um, I don't know anything about Twitter, even though I have a handle, but Instagram, JT Blatty. Yes. All right. Um, it's, the photos are really great. I've seen some of them myself and uh, I think it's, uh, it's going to be really fun to see to see this stuff when um, 
and and on on top of that, it's it's also just like you said, it's 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 a really great thing that you're doing, bearing witness to these people who have uh, stood up for their countries, and you know that's that's the that's the anti for civilization. You know, you stand up for your country in a real way. Exactly. Thank you again. Thank you for joining Rathbury Tree. Thank you, Aiden.